Stacy Chalemi graduated from Richard Stockton College in Pomona, New Jersey, majoring in marketing and advertising. In the mid-90s, while in college, she began her first book, Epilepsy, You're Not Alone. It was published six years later. Some of her other books include How to Be Wealthy Selling Informational Products on the Internet, two children's books, Mommy Has Epilepsy and Daddy Has Epilepsy, and Eternal Love, Romantic Poetry Straight from the Heart. Her most recent book is called How Thinking Positive Can Make You Successful. Her website says she's written over 400 articles, contributed to Chicken Soup for the Recovering Soul and Chicken Soup for the Shopper Soul, and she says a recent accomplishment was a book signing at the Borders Express in Freehold, New Jersey. And that's where we are now, on the main floor, sitting on the comfortable couches in the Asia Travel section. Stacy, thanks for bringing me to a place that's special to you. I can't help but wonder, is it easier to stay positive when we stay close to places we have good associations with? Oh, I think definitely. I think when you're comfortable in a situation, you always have a more positive attitude. But yeah, you know, this has been my hometown for many, many years. And, you know, I, I grew up in this area. So, uh, and I, I love it around here. Everybody in the store seems to know you. Yeah, you know, I, I've made a, a lot of friends over the years. And, you know, and my book signings and, and all my other stuff. I, I've uh, met a lot of people over the years. Well, let's talk about some tactics. Okay. Early on in your book, you, you recommend visualization. You say visualize happiness and success. Add mental pictures that support your positive affirmations. How does this work? You know what? First, you're accepting yourself. You're going to learn how to accept yourself, who you are. But, but wait, 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 what if the problem isn't me? Okay. Well, <laughs> give me what an if, example. Hypothetically, I have a boss who mm -hmm. is really awful. Like, right. Really, this guy is very petty, mean-spirited, really awful individual. I mean, mm -hmm. the kind of guy that uses every opportunity to make you feel small and insignificant, someone who berates and belittles you on a daily basis, right. and then in a jokey voice will say something like, totally absurd, like, oh, I'm going to leave all this behind and go study conflict resolution. Right. Like, a mean person is going to go out there and study conflict resolution, you know, with, like, on international relations. But sometimes I do visualize this <laughs> hypothetical boss of mine just kind of not existing and, and right. not in like a mean way like a bus running over him mm -hmm. or, or lightning striking I like to visualize more biblically like the earth opening up and swallowing him whole mm -hmm. and uh, he's really into composting so it's <laughs> totally implausible and I know that's very negative but reading your book I was thinking that perhaps I could better get what I want by visualizing in a more positive manner like I know he's miserable and mm -hmm. lonely I caught him once looking on uh, the internet at like an online dating yeah. system so he's lonely so is it possible for me to visualize him say meeting a nice woman in India who's like yeah. in the composting and, and maybe that's like he's out of here to go like after true love. You know, it's, 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 it's a good visualization. Obviously this person is, has a low self-esteem, has a lot of anger inside of them. They're using other people to, to vent out to try to make themselves feel better. Because a lot of times when they say things, negative things to other people, it's because they feel like that themselves. And they're using you as a way to, to, to vent, a way to, they have no, nowhere to vent. So they vent out on anybody and anything. So you know what, you look at that person and say, I'm so above that person. That person has issues they're not dealing with and that's not my problem. But you know what, I know I'm above them. I know I'm better than him. And I'm just gonna 
block those comments out. I'm on the balcony. You're on the They're balcony, on the man, and he's on the street, you know. By he's the garbage can. By the garbage can. He's by the sewers, man, you know, and you're way above there, you know. And it's like, you know what, you can't change him. This is who he is. This is where he wants to be. That's his problem. Mm. But you know what, you can, you just have to learn how to tune him out. When I, someone comes over to me, they're negative, they're saying stuff, you know what, I have to stop and think for a second before it lets, gets me down. I say, you know what, this person, either they're jealous, they have issues and anger, because a lot of people tend to be jealous and they'll shoot negative comments out about other people because they just want to be where you're at. You know, you just have to keep moving up the totem pole and just let him stay by the sewers. You write in your book that you must free yourself from negative things that you have stored inside you and fill your soul with peace and serenity. Yes, definitely. How, you, how do you go about doing this? Basically, in, in life, we all have our stresses, you know, between, you know, especially in this day and age. It's not like, you know, back in the day with our grandparents, uh, you know, we, um, we, ha we have a lot of more things on our shoulders. Even the young kids nowadays have a lot of more things to cope with on their shoulders. Uh, you know, we have to learn how to you know, deal with the obstacles that occur in our lives. We need to uh, let go of things that, you know, hold us back mm -hmm. and we need to look forward. I always say the past past um, is, is, is gone. Now you have to learn how to love yourself. A lot of times, not many people, we, we tend to not love ourselves. I think now. I'm okay. All right, so you think you love yourself. Okay. No, I think I'm okay. All right, you think you're okay. You're, friends you're call on the borderline. I call it like friend, friend, friends with benefits. Okay, friends with benefits. <laughs> okay. Um, all right, so, so right now you want to change, so that's the perfect thing. Another thing you talk about is dreaming and fantasizing. This is one of my favorite things in your book. Yeah. Uh, you say dreaming and fantasizing give you a feeling of serenity and inner peace. Definitely. Fantasizing has a positive impact on you and your body. When you fantasize, you put yourself in a state of consciousness that lies between reality and the world of dreams. Right. The imagination roams freely, although usually guided by mostly unconscious urges, concerns, and memories. Mm -hmm. Fantasies help us to find out what kind of ambition we have and the people we want to become in life. Right. Now this dreaming and fantasy, this is where positive thinking is positively not worked for me. Mm -hmm. I'm really good at daydreaming and fantasies. And uh, a few years ago, I was living with a girl mm -hmm. and I was very unhappy and at night I would stay up reading and I would fret about the situation and I was desperately trying to think of a plan to get out and between the bedroom and the bathroom there was a window that looked out across the parking lot at another building right. across the way and every night I would be up late and I could see that there was a woman in the building uh, in a, an apartment across the uh, mm -hmm. the parking lot and she would always be up late too and she was on her treadmill and she uh, was a very beautiful Asian woman who was always on her treadmill and I kind of uh, would watch her night after night and I, I kind of created this whole fantasy world about how we were meant to be together right. and uh, we would you know maybe open up like a bar slash bookstore <laughs> or we'd become like an internationally famous documentary team and you know, it wasn't just like a, a crazy retarded fantasy. I would also, you know, fantasize realistically right. about like maybe meeting her on the street and saying, hey, you know, we're neighbors. We should go out. <laughs> I see you on the treadmill every night. But the point of the story is that when I was finally ready to do this, I was finally ready to like, you know, stand outside the building and, and meet her. She I'd moved. Leave, I'd leave out the watching her on, on the treadmill <laughs> type of thing, you know, if you, if you, do, if you did bump but into her. But she moved. 
one night the apartment was empty, and the next there's this like fat guy moving in. And I was, like, totally devastated. There goes your. Uh, <laughs> I lost my chance of happiness, and I felt like I had completely failed myself, my dreams, and I got really angry. And I remember staring at him as he was, you know, like setting up his giant flat screen TV where right. she had her nice little treadmill and, and, and the yeah. modest computer monitor. And I was just thinking really powerful negative thoughts. It's like right. as negative as I could possibly think. And the next day, his apartment went on fire. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Fire trucks came. Oh Cranes went up to the window and they shot water all over his stuff. It was total chaos. Oh and my God. One night later, I'm staring at like the charred facade mm-hmm. and his windows all boarded up. Oh, wow. I even have a picture of it. Look at this. That was the fire. Oh my God. <gasps> if you're in pain but you just can't let anyone know because if they know then the possibilities are much greater that they'll just leave or walk away from you in the middle of a sentence i had no choice i had to sound as phony fake friendly funny as i could because the one thing i learned that i was horrified and shocked and did not need to learn was that it's true that uh, nobody sticks by you when the times are tough. It's funny because, you know, as much as I'm hearing you talk about these friends that deserted you, and I'm like, God, those bastards, how dare they? There were definitely times when, you know, I was just sitting there reading a book or having a coffee or walking down the streets, and and I would, you know, hear my phone ring, and I would take it out of my pocket, and it would say, Peter Choice! You know, and I would just, you know, put it back in my pocket. So, I mean, I guess I was one of those people. 80% of the people I know left when I became in pain in a wheelchair. And uh, so I just grouped you with the 80%. People who flee when friends are in trouble, so. So are you still in a wheelchair? I'm sitting in one right now, yes. I mean, uh, not just because it's furniture, but are you actually in one day to day? I have two wheelchairs. I have one for the car and one for the house. So a lot has really happened to you over the past few years. Well, it all happened at the same time. The strike in Hollywood, which really never ended, a sag through all the movies and TV shows out of Hollywood. So that happened at the same time that uh, my physical problem started, so I, I couldn't get out of the house. And also, I stopped being on the radio, a creative outlet. Mm-hmm. And then no one came to visit because uh, I became a problem. I don't have a wife, say, or a best friend. I was uh, alone, lonely. So what did you do? What I do is I objectify my situation. As they say, rise above my own thing and view it from the outside and try to take into account that at least I'm here in this time and place, meaning uh, the comforts of a bed. Uh, What I'm not is on skid row. I haven't failed completely. I'm not completely drug addicted or uh, alcohol poisoned or Jesus freaked. And I'm not in India or Mexico eating out of garbage cans. You know, I tried that all the time, but it, it never worked. 
I mean, I would think things like, I have a job, I get paid well, I have an apartment, I get to live by myself without roommates downtown Manhattan, I have girlfriends. Yeah, that doesn't sound like much of a problem. You know, I even thought things like, you could be like Peter Choice, who's suffering in a wheelchair in the middle of nowhere, all alone, facing destitution, a meth addict. But it just didn't help. I was still consumed by depression. You know, you're just like everybody that goes to see a psychiatrist. And what happens at a psychiatrist is the psychiatrist makes you worse because they're doing the opposite of what should happen. What Your problem is you're too much inside yourself. You think about yourself. Once you learn how to get outside yourself and care about others, your problems become very small. For instance, remember I, so I was withdrawing from dangerous drugs, all these Michael Jackson drugs, methadone, morphine, mm -hmm. and I quit cigarettes on top of it. And I was so excited about, about quitting cigarettes. I never had cravings or anything. And the way that I did it was that well, I became very concerned about my cat because I had a new kitten and I had an old cat and they didn't like me smoking, of course, because they have small lungs. And getting outside myself just that way, not even toward another human, but another being, made me quit smoking. It really works. It's like, uh, now I'm responsible for something other than myself. Surely if I had another human that I would have used the human, but the cats were good enough. It's such a great, trick, the great philosophy. It works so well that you can do it with an animal. Well, Peter, I'm glad your kitty-powered mind games helped you with the cigarettes, but what about the loneliness? How do you solve that? Couchsurfing. Couchsurfing.org, or is it .com? Is it couchsurfing.com or org? Couchsurfing.org. Who are you talking to? I'm talking to Alexandria. She's here. She's uh, couch surfing. It's, this is mind-boggling. You have someone in your house right now couch surfing. Yes, it's a program that's on the internet. It's not a program at all. It's just uh, uh, you host people that are traveling. They're all temporary. So what could be more perfect? Because my only real problem was I didn't like being lonely at the age of 50. As long as the room is full then I'm not alone, so... You have someone right now? Yes. From where? She's from France. Let me talk to her. Hey, Alexandria, will you talk to Ben Walker? She says she's shy. It's okay, it's okay. Tell her I'll be nice. No. Hello? Bonjour. Uh, bonjour. <laughs> How are you? Uh, I'm pretty good. How yeah? are you? I'm very mm -hmm. good. Um, it's okay. funny, I know no French. Um, I should... Oh, you know one word? I know one word, but, you know, I have a French girl living with me. Oh, that's so bad. I like to date foreigners. Yeah? I have this theory that if you date someone who speaks another language, then you never have to worry about having one of those uncomfortable moments where you think you actually understand each other. Uh, you should be ashamed of yourself. Thank you, I am. So, how many nights have you been there? Uh, two. Two nights, and, and how's it going? Um, he didn't tell me that he was a nudist, so he was like walking naked all the time, you know. At first I wasn't comfortable with us, you know. Has he like asked you to eat breakfast with him, lunch with him, dinner with him? Yeah. He has? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the requirement is, is that you actually have to hang out? <laughs> yeah, 24-7. 
Uh, so, how's he doing? Well, he, he um, how do I say, complains a lot about his pain uh, for the for the back. Interesting. See, I I thought this wheelchair thing was fake, just so he can get like the sticker, so he could park the car. Oh, he's not using it. <laughs> I knew it. And he leaves he leaves the door open, so you know every every cat in the neighborhood can come in and you know eat. Yeah. Sorry, I don't like it. Okay, okay. So, do you think that when you leave, like he'll fall apart? No. I know. Okay, I'm I'm leaving, but uh, people are coming. Andre Owl is a web designer and an amateur economist. You've probably been sent a link to one of his many websites. He's the guy behind the Hot Chicks websites. Yep, Hot Chicks Eating Bananas, he made that one. Hot Chicks Crying on Cell Phones, he made that one. Hot Chicks Reading the Da Vinci Code, Hot Chicks Clipping Their Nails on Public Transportation. Andre Owl's made all of these. But the one that fascinates me the most is Hot Chicks Smiling at Ground Zero. And that's where Andre joins me now. We are at Ground Zero on a very sunny Sunday afternoon. Thanks for coming out to meet me, man. Oh, it's great to be here. So how do you make these sites? How do you aggregate, say, a bunch of pictures of girls smiling at Ground Zero? I mean, they're not sending them to you. Well, not at first. Actually, uh, what we've got set up is, is a script that runs about every hour, and it uh, uses the Flickr API. So it's an API-driven site, uh, and just uh, searches for a few key tag words, like Ground Zero, 9-11, things like that. Then we send the things out to the Mechanical Turk. We, we get them filtered there. And what's that? Well, it's kind of a crowdsourcing market. Uh, it's great because you can basically get menial, you know, small tasks done for a very cheap price. So we send links to them. That link might get sent to somebody in France. They click on the link, they look on the photo, and they decide whether there's a woman in it and whether it's at ground zero. But who decides whether the woman is hot? Well, it's these people on Mechanical Turk. Uh, we ask them to rate the women in the photos on a scale of 0 to 10, and then we take the ones that perform the highest. And then when we find photos that match our, our requirements, they automatically appear on our website. So if it's an average girl smiling at ground zero, then uh, she doesn't make the site? No. So what's going on with this site then? Are you mocking these women for posing in the same way that they would say at the Statue of Liberty or the Empire State Building? Well, actually, no. I mean, 
At first, sure, I, you know, I thought it was kind of f***ed up and was going for the shock value. But then after I had the site up for a little while, I, I got an email from a woman who was actually featured on the site. And what she wrote me really changed the way that I saw these photos. And I actually brought the email with me because I'd like to read it to you now. Okay. She writes, Dear Webmaster, someone sent me a link to your site today. And I clicked around it wondering if I'd be there as I visited Ground Zero a few years ago. And LOL, there I am. I'm so glad you think I'm hot. <laughs> LOL. What is your name? I am Tina. I am from Las Vegas. This was my first trip to New York, and I obviously wanted to go to Ground Zero because I think it's a very important place, and important to our history now. I remember waking up that day. It is earlier in Las Vegas, so I was sleeping when the planes exploded the towers. But when I woke up, my mom was in the kitchen watching the TV, and she said, there's no school today. And at first I was like, OMG, this is great, no school. But then when she said that terrorists attacked New York and lots of people were dead, and I wasn't happy anymore, I would rather have gone to school than this. LOL. I watched TV with my mom all day and all night, and we cried together and hugged, and I made her promise me that I could visit New York one day. I figured I could volunteer and help some of the survivors. But my mom is really negative, she continues, and she said that the terrorists would probably come back and blow up more of New York, and that I should never think of going there because it's much safer in Las Vegas, because it's too far away for the terrorists to get to. Plus, desert is kind of like their homeland, so it would be more likely for them to blow up something they hate, like cities. But I was persistent. I knew that New York was important to America, so I kept bugging my mom to take me. I am the positive one in the family, so I kept telling her that New York is the best, and we need to go there. But she was like, well, you get the money for the tickets. This went on for four years. Then it was 2005, and it was my senior year in high school, and I turned 18, and I started working at the Fiesta. And they have slot machines there, so I started playing them. I was determined to win money so we could go to New York. And I won. I won like a $7,000 which pissed my mom off to no end because she's always playing the slot machines for like 30 years and she's never won crapola. LOL. She likes the LOLs. <laughs> she sure does. Uh, so we went to New York, stayed at this big hotel in Times Square, saw Billy Elliot on Broadway and did tons of shopping. And we went to Central Park and to the FAO Schwartz next to it. And on the last day, we went to Ground Zero. And that's why I'm smiling. I'm so proud to be at Ground Zero and not giving up on my dream. And I'm proud of winning the slots at the Fiesta, and I'm proud to be an American, and I'm proud of the future, because America is always going to be strong in the future. Thanks for putting me on your site. Look me up if you ever come to Las Vegas. I still work at the Fiesta. So, Andre, you're saying that this letter actually makes you see these women in a new way? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I see Tina in the mall now. I think these women in these photographs they're proud, and they're proud of their country, they're proud of their beauty, and they're proud of, of, this, uh, of the way that people have came together. So many people make the mistake of, of, of looking at 9-11 as just the tragedy, but, they're, but at the same time, it's about the America that came together afterwards. It's about being proud to be an American, about being strong and coming together as a country. And I, and I Did you say at the beginning of our conversation that people are actually sending you photos now? Oh yeah, once the, once the site got picked up on the blogosphere, it just took off. I mean, I've been deluged with photos. And, and not just from uh, women who are, who are looking through their photo albums and sending me stuff from when they visited New York, but I've actually gotten emails from women who are now, they're dolling themselves up, they're, they're coming to New York, and they're taking pictures just so they can send them to our site. And that's what really moves me. It's that my website isn't just collecting things off of other sites. It's that it's actually affecting change in the world. Yeah, positive change. 
And, and at the same time, that's what really upsets me about how I have no time right now to, to be updating the website. I've just been dealing with so much of the business side. Gotten a lot of attention from venture capitalists and angel investors. And what, for, for what? Well, I think that they see this as a real business opportunity. I think you know, this is, they see this as a, as a way out of, you know, as, as, as a business model to take us out of the recession. I mean, this is, you know, America has, has, has seen hard times before and we've really come together and we've come out of it. But how have we done that? It's, it's through optimism, it's through being positive. As, as Tina said, she, she's a positive woman and, and, and she believes in herself and, and you know, she won the $7,000 in the slot machine. I mean, take a look here, we're on the corner of Vesey and Washington and we see, that we see this tower going up right now. It's, we keep moving forward, we're looking to the future and it's these women who are coming here and have this positive attitude. It's this, 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 this positivity that, that I think is really going to take us out of this current recession. But I don't understand like, what the investors and, and the, the angels would, like, what would they give money for? Well, I mean, there's, there's a number of different directions we could take. I mean, we could, we could go in the merchandising direction. I could see calendars. I could see, uh, you know, a clothing line whatever. Uh, on the other hand, I've had investors who are interested in pushing it more in a porn direction. I'm not sure I'm interested in that. But So, naked hot chicks smiling at groundzero.com. Well, I did register that one. Sanders and his Nighthawks doing the theme song to the Little Orphan Annie radio show from 1928. 
and how you go from this piece of beautiful music to vile dreck like the sun will come out tomorrow? I don't know. I do not know. Uh, I think that the people who did the original Annie have done a sequel. No. Called Annie Warbucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, no. yeah well, I mean, yeah, it's not, it's not going to be obviously a great work of art, but I'm kind of hoping it's good for us. Comics historian Jeet here and myself are both members of the Little Orphan Annie fan club. The real Annie. The one created by cartoonist Harold Gray in the 1920s. IDW Press is reprinting all the classic strips. There's four volumes out so far, and Jeet here is writing all the introductions. He's also Canadian, which I guess accounts for his positive attitude, because for me, the thought of another Orphan Annie musical makes me want to claw out my eardrums with an ice pick. And I don't care how many new fans of the real Annie another musical would create, which is perhaps unfair considering that the first musical is what turned me on to Harold Gray's creation, but I stand firm. So, Jeet here, I realized the other day that Little Orphan Annie is actually the only positive thinker that I've ever been able to take seriously. The only one I've ever enjoyed listening to. In fact, I think she's actually even inspired me a few times. So, who is this amazing little girl? Well, Annie is a sort of Dickensian orphan. We don't know her origins or ancestry. She came out of this uh, orphanage. And the main personality trait of Annie is that she never gets discouraged. She's always positive. And as Ma Green says, you know, this kid has ginger, you know. <laughs> uh, this kid is uh, is lively. He's not uh, simply smiling all the time, but really is feisty and is willing to take her part. Is willing to stand up for herself. Is is this perhaps maybe the the, the best adjective for for why she won over the the hearts and minds of, of so many Americans? The kid had ginger. I think that's a good phrase. Yeah, I, I kind of like it. Uh, um, and in some ways, I think we could, if we were looking back on the sort of ancestors of Annie, like there's a whole host of characters like Oliver Twist, going back to Dickens, and uh, but also a lot of like uh, uh, characters in girls' literature, like Pollyanna. Uh, who are also very optimistic, but they tend to be a little too sweet or a little too passive. I mean, if you reread Oliver Twist, um, Oliver uh, doesn't do much. I mean, there's one occasion where he sort of fights for himself, but usually he's sort of protected by others. And the same is true of Pollyanna, who's perhaps a little bit too sickly sweet uh, to be quite plausible. Whereas, like, Annie has enough of that sort of contrarian kind of streak. Um, there's an interesting sort of gender dimension as well, in the sense that, like, the apparently the cartoonist Harold Gray originally wanted to do, like, a strip about a boy, Little Orphan Otto, and the publisher said that, well, there's too many boy strips, and uh, the, the kid doesn't look quite right. Uh, put a dress on him and call him Annie. <laughs> uh, and so, so there's a sense in which Annie is a tomboy, and she has the sort of, you know, the Huckleberry Finn uh, attitude of, like, you know, not quite respecting the rules and, and willing to live like a tramp and go out on the road, but she's a girl, and, and that's kind of interesting. So it has a sort of, she gets the best of both worlds. She has that sort of feistiness that we, we expect from a young boy, but then she has uh, enough of the uh, sort of sweetness. Yeah, that we yeah. want from a girl. <laughs> well, I, as for why Annie was so popular, I, there's um, actually a really great letter in 1925 that was written by Minnie McIntyre Wallace, who was just an ordinary reader of the Chicago Tribune. And the Tribune had left Annie out of the paper for a day, and that caused a lot of complaints. And the Tribune was inundated by mail. And this is what Wallace wrote. Dear Mr. Gray, 
it is always pleasant to know that merit is recognized. Annie is certainly popular, and I want to give you my version of why she has made such a hit. First, because she is the voice of the people. Second, because she is democratic in the true sense of the word, warm of heart, sympathetic, strong for the underdog. Third, because she is not dazzled by wealth or shoddy gentility. Fourth, because she is the eternal child that lives in the hearts of men and women. And fifth, because one never knows down what lane she will run next. Six, because she loves animals and nature, bees and buds and berries and bossy cows. Children love her. Adults sigh for their lost spontaneity and initiative of youth, seeing them in her. So I think that's a really great letter, and it speaks to a lot of the things um, I've been trying to get at, which is the uh, way in which um, Annie uh, has this sort of you know message of the the underdog, um, uh, you know, fighting for the little guy, and then it's also combined with uh, the youth angle. I mean, she's not just uh, uh, orphan Annie, the underdog; she's little orphan Annie, yeah. the young girl. Well, she's also Little Orphan Annie, the cartoon character. I mean, come on. A letter like that just could not be written about a real person. I mean, in a way, isn't she sort of like Jesus? Like the perfect person, but unfortunately not real? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what is it about Little Orphan Annie in the Great Depression? Harold Gray, you know, created the strip in the 20s and, and wrote and drew her adventures well into the 60s but it's in the 30s where it seems that Annie really comes into her own and at the same time Gray comes into his own brand of conservative storytelling as well. Yeah, I think one of the thing, interesting things about Gray is that he was telling the same stories kind of from the start, from 1924, um, Annie's always in a poor strait. And occasionally in the 20s, Annie will run into people who say, you know, why should we give to the poor? These are good times. But she'll quite correctly tell them, you know, like, you don't know what you're talking about. There's still a lot of poverty, as, as there was in America in the 20s, uh, as there is in any time. Uh, but in the 30s, the poverty became more generalized, and so there's a way in which the story of Annie was perfectly suited for the era, that, uh, th- th- that those were t- times in which people wanted to have stories of the underdog who has sort of handicaps but comes back. I mean, yeah, but I could imagine people relating to, you know, Annie and Daddy Warbucks facing the cold hard facts of unemployment and, and bread lines. But, you know, this whole narrative of, of bringing yourself up from your bootstraps and, and, and regaining your, your fortune, that doesn't really seem to jive, though, with the, the new mood of the 30s, which is, you know, government can actually step in and, and help the poor and, and, uh-huh. and, and help, you know, the, under, the underdog. Something happened to Gray in the early 30s, and I think uh, he reacted very badly to the New Deal. Like, he sort of saw the New Deal as taking uh, his sort of message of, you know, generalized charity and and maybe making it too institutionalized. He was a very contrarian man, and he hated institutions. Uh, And so he really... Uh, reformulated his populist storytelling uh, by having the same story of underdogs versus the elite, except now he made the elites into the liberal elites. So for a while, Daddy Warbucks marries this terrible woman who's this sort of um, very left-wing, and she has all these sort of uh, snooty um, uh, pals who are college professors and poets and who always talk about wanting to, you know, massacre the rich. Mm-hmm. And then and later on in other stories, the villains are always labor union leaders, pointy-headed college professors, government bureaucrats, do-gooders, one-worlders that, uh, you know, don't want to f- uh, fight against America's enemies. So, so, so in a way... The 
uh, populist allegory became not like the uh, underdog versus the banker, but the underdog versus the liberal elite. Um, and it is kind of curious that, you know, this was very popular at the exact same time as the New Deal, except that, I mean, we have to remember, like, American politics is always polarized, and, uh, you know, like, Roosevelt at his best moment won 60% of the vote, but that still meant that they were, like, you know, tens of millions of people who didn't like him. Yeah. Uh, and more particularly, I, I think maybe the strip also spoke to the, because it was using this populist language that was so familiar to people, like, they were, uh, they were willing to go along with it, like, like because it did have that basic template of the underdog versus the big boys. But what about Annie's optimism? How intertwined is it with Gray's politics? In other words, what comes first? The optimism of, I can do anything on my own, or Gray's politics, the government should not be helping poor people. I think it's the nature of that sort of populist narrative, which is an optimistic narrative, after all. It's, it's the narrative of people coming together to overcome their problems. Um, that, op- that narrative can be used in different ways, right? And, and we often see this in the history of America, that there are various people who are populist, um, of the left and then become populist of the right. Uh, uh, for example, uh, Tom Watson, one of the original leaders of the Populist Party, uh, later became, you know, a uh, member of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, and so uh, the, the populist narrative is, you know, let, let's, let's the community come together and we can work together to foil the elites that are um, uh, giving us trouble. Now, those elites can vary in their identity. It's one thing to say if the elites are the bankers in New York that are, like, you know, uh, shafting us. It's another thing to say that the elites are, you know, these pointy-headed Harvard intellectuals, uh, you know, who don't respect the real America. Uh, so, so there's a way in which, you know, Annie can, the message of Annie could be used by both someone like, you know, Jesse Jackson, you know, an optimist of the left, or by Sarah Palin, an optimist of the right. That's fascinating. Uh, and in fact, Palin herself is uh, more and more becoming an orphan Annie-like creature. Like, I notice whenever I see Palin on TV, she's always using all these sort of Annie-esque phrases like, you betcha, you know, like, we can overcome our problems. It's just the elite that's giving us trouble. You betcha. And, you know, she has that sort of sunny personality that uh, sort of appeals to people. If she says Leaping Lizards, I am so taking her out. <laughs> Sarah Palin is perhaps the best example of how positive thinking is bad for America, but there are just so many. Enough to fill a book. Brightsided, How the Relentless Promotion of Positive Thinking Has Undermined America is Barbara Ehrenreich's latest book, and it's a really important one. And more importantly, it's really funny, too. One of my favorite things about your book is uh, some of the individuals you encounter. A lot of them think that you're, you know, from another planet. This whole idea that happiness doesn't necessarily equal good. You, you know, you seem to blow a lot of folks' minds when you, when you bring up that idea. Well, I'm not against happiness. Let me clear that up right away. <laughs> um, it's a hard thing to measure uh, and to study. I do complain about that. What I'm really uh, up against here in Brightsided, though, is the uh, pretense of happiness, the, the kind of act we perform for each other so much, uh, which is called you know, being positive. 
being cheerful, upbeat, uh, no matter what the situation. And this is not something we just do voluntarily. I mean, it is expected. It is demanded of people in so many jobs today. The positive attitude more important, is said to be more important than whether your skills are, your experience, or anything. In your book, you take us on this journey that you have with breast cancer to show just how pervasive the positive thinking industry is ingrained in the healthcare system. You know, we may not get healthcare, public option, but we do get the plush uh, color bears. And again, this seems like another thing that's taken for granted. You know, I was even let down when I read in your book that, you know, there are studies that show that actually, no, positive thoughts do not empower the immune system. <laughs> but why are studies yeah. that call this sort of, you know, wishful thinking, I guess, into question, having such a hard time making it to the front pages? Well, I really first became aware of positive thinking as a uh, requirement in our culture when I was being treated for breast cancer eight years ago now. And, you know, everywhere I heard the same thing. You've got to be positive about it. You've got to think, even think, in, think of it as a good thing that's happening to you. Think of cancer as a gift, because at the other end, you're going to be more spiritual, evolved, etc. Now, that's not how I felt. No. I was horrified uh, to have the disease, horrified at the, the forms of treatment uh, that existed and still exist. Didn't know why we have this epidemic. So I, w I had a very bad attitude. And yet I was also being told that whether I recovered or not might depend on my attitude, or did depend on my attitude that the kind of bad, angry attitude that I had could be condemning me to death. It was sort of smile or die. And, well, fortunately, we now know from a number of studies, and, and even with different kinds of cancer, that your outlook, your mental state, has nothing to do with the progress of the disease. Now, that's, I think, a big relief, because it's an extra burden to not only be sick, but be told that you will get better only if you change this other thing that's wrong with you, that is your attitude. Yeah, now you, you quote a few uh, women from message boards that you found online during this period that were really, really haunting. Basically, women wondering why, considering how positive they were being, why were they still ill? There's a very sad uh, thing I, I quote. It's actually from... Deepak Chopra's website, where a woman had written to him saying that her cancer kept metastasizing, and even though she did all the right things to be positive, uh, that everything apparently that he had urged her to do, uh, and that she was constantly working on her attitude. And he wrote back and said, well, you just have to work harder. And I thought, oh, my God, give the poor woman a break. You know, this is what's happening to her is terrible. We have to acknowledge that. And maybe we have to listen to her pain instead of just telling her to put on a smiley face. This to me seems the strongest claim that, you know, positive thinking might actually be bad for you because a woman in this situation can't help but sort of turn this frustration inwards. You start, you know, to blame yourself. It's the same, I think, though, with other things besides disease. Uh, if you lose your job in a layoff, uh, you're going to encounter the career coaches and life coaches who will tell you uh, that, that that's an opportunity. That's not a bad thing. That's an opportunity. You know, now you, you should be cheerful. You should be, in fact, grateful for having lost that old job. I was just laid off, and, and it's the best thing that ever happened to me. 
There is a book called We Got Fired, and It's the Best Thing That Ever Happened to Us uh, by Harvey McKay, very well-known uh, coach and positive-thinking guru. So, yeah, we, we, I think we tend to silence people who um, are unhappy, who for, and maybe for very good reason, uh, because of terrible circumstances in their lives. And the, the attitude, I think, is it becomes very cruel. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's like, um, don't be a whiner, don't be a complainer. You know, it's been an amazing year watching the media try to both apologize for not being on the ball about the financial crisis, and at the same time, try to pretend that it's now able to explain to us why it happened. And you seem to suggest that the core of the problem might actually be related to positive thinking. In other words, the banker who brings up, you know, the harsh realities of impending mass mortgage defaults is seen as negative and not a team player. Is this really what happened? There are a lot of things that fed into the financial meltdown of 2008. I mean, greed and, uh, you know, uh, an economy more and more uh, focused on financial transactions rather than making anything or doing anything useful. But you cannot deny the role of sort of mandatory optimism in bringing about the crash. At, at one level, uh, the level of uh, you know, average people, poor people even, who took out subprime mortgages and adjustable rate mortgages in the middle of the decade uh, because they were told, don't worry about it. Hmm. You know, here's your opportunity. Maybe they're, they had a positive thinking type uh, preacher, as many of the Christian evangelicals are today, who was saying, God wants you to have a bigger house. So, yeah, now there's finally a mortgage for you. Grab it, you know. <laughs> and then at the other level, at the highest levels of... Uh, the corporations. This mentality was becoming, as one insider put it to me, viral. Uh, that what happens in the world just depends on what we think, not on what we do. And if you want good things to happen, you have to eliminate negative thoughts and negative people who might be around you. So if there's somebody who keeps saying, oh, I'm a little worried about the subprime exposure we've got here, get rid of him. <laughs> you know, that's, that's annoying. That'll bring, that's a bummer. It'll bring everybody down. You don't want that around. Isn't this perhaps the best definition, then, of Alan Greenspan's irrational exuberance? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly related to what Greens, uh, Greenspan called irrational exuberance. But I think you have to also uh, put in the factor of how much this was a bubble mm. of, you know, people had enclosed themselves in a bubble of cheerfulness mm. uh, and would not let any doubts or questions creep into that. Yeah. So let's say you decided to hit the lecture circuit and motivate people to stop thinking positive. Let's say you're at the podium in an auditorium of folks who've paid money, like some of the things you've gone to, to get inspired. How do you start off? <laughs> well, first of all, um, <laughs> it can, uh, positive thinking can hurt, can hurt because it's delusional. You know, if you have to assure yourself that everything is going to turn out well all the time, you're in trouble. You know, we need something called realism. It's an old-fashioned idea. Trying to understand what's really going on in the world without just coloring the world with our wishful thinking. Uh, I tell people that I, that dad 
must have known Twitter was coming 50 years ago because all of his famous quotes are 140 characters or less. It's like one of them is opportunity is in the person, not the job. And, you know, so many people say, well, I'm going to be successful because of... And the reality is it's not because of why they're successful. It's, it's really themselves. So Dad's quotes, they're simple on the front end, but pretty deep on the back end. So, Tom, if you run into someone, say, at Dunkin' Donuts, someone who doesn't know who your dad is, how do you describe him? Ah, uh, well, Zig Ziglar is probably the most well-known motivational speaker and author in the personal development area. Um, uh, Anybody who's looking for the foundational reasons of of how to be successful, he's kind of the go-to person. And how'd you end up in the family business? I mean, you never thought of rebelling? No, actually, I tell people I've been uh, working at our company for 44 years, and that's how old I am. (laughs) So, (laughs) my whole life working uh i feel like i've been working here my whole life and there was never a time you thought i could use this power of my father's for myself i mean come on tom you could have been the dark (laughs) zig i saw a tweet the other day come through where somebody was you know basically uh cutting out of work and calling their boss an idiot and i thought you know if i wanted to because i know how to use search engines and you know, things like that. I could probably get that person fired within 12 hours <laughs> just because. So, Tom, tell us why you set up the Zig Ziglar Twitter feed and what you guys are trying to do with it. I'd heard about Twitter and I went and checked it out, didn't really understand it. Uh, played around with it. I heard people were really having fun with it, but also making connections. And then the first part of this year, 2009, I started kind of playing with it, and I put out some Zig quotes, and as I would put out a Zig quote, um, people would follow, uh, and the word started getting around, and then I would go and search on Twitter people who were quoting Dad, and I would follow them. Uh, Right now, he gets quoted probably over a thousand times a day, and one of the funny things to me is... uh, Ludacris, are you familiar with Ludacris, the rapper? Uh huh. He has a Twitter site, um, and he quotes Dad uh, once a week at least, and those will get retweeted maybe three, four, five hundred times when that happens. And I'm not sure if it's Ludacris or somebody in his, you know, on his team or whatever who's doing it. So you have a lot of Twitter followers, but what are you trying to do with them? Well, people assume that. Um, Twitter or, or even technology in a broader stance can do the job for you and because of that you don't need to build a relationship and what I've found on Twitter that's real world and technology and the Twitterverse so to speak is that if you want to be successful in it relationship is the key so you've got to use Twitter or Facebook or anything that you're into to, to really build relationships and a lot of times people don't. They, they go the opposite way. They, they think that because they're tweeting that they're talking to people and they're really not. You know, they're just, they're just kind of shouting in the wind. So, but these pithy, positive aphorisms you're sending out, how are they not tweets in the wind? Uh, we're, we're kind of at an advantage because we are Ziggler. So, you know, we can use Ziggler quotes all day long and never get criticized for it. 
but there are a lot of kind of what I call robot-driven engines that are just one quote after another. And then they have a link to a totally unrelated product or service they want you to buy, and they think that's going to work for them, and it, you know, it just doesn't. Uh, on the other hand, there's a lot of people who I follow and who have relationships with that um, they do a lot of quotes, but when, you, when I send stuff to them or when I watch their timelines, they're having conversations all the time with the people, and a lot of people actually go there for encouragement. I've had people you know, tweet to me and say that they just go to my timeline once or twice a week just to kind of get a pickup. And, you know, success in life and in sales and marketing or whatever you want to do, it's about telling a story. And because people can't remember the facts, usually, but they can remember a story. And a quote is just a very short story. So when we send out a tweet that has a quote in it, it reminds people of the story, which brings them back to us in many ways. In what kind of ways, though, Tom? I mean, what sort of evidence do you have that your tweets are forming actual relationships? Well, let's see. I've probably gotten uh, 15 or 20 radio interviews because of it. You've been listening to Too Much Information. This week's episode is called The Power of Negative Thinking. It was produced by myself, Benjamin Walker, and Bill Bowen. And it featured Stacey Chalemi, Peter Choice, Andre Owl, Jeet Heer, Barbara Ehrenreich, and Tom Ziegler. Special thanks to James Burns and Mathilde Bio. And special, special thanks to the one and only Kara Oler. For even more Too Much Information, visit the TMI show page at WFMU.org.